There was such a tremendous weight, I think, of everybody doing that work at Netflix from the standpoint of we knew that we were a place that people were finding escape and joy, moments of joy in a really bleak situation. And we were really glad that we could help in that way. But we are also all humans and we are also all working from home and figuring that out. Emergence happens whether or not you want it to happen. It's really around, are you paying attention to capture what you can learn from that? You're listening to Unintended Consequences, the podcast that explores how systems become large and complex and how they change the lives of everyone they touch. I'm Kim Harrison, team sociologist. I'm Yos Graham, software wrangler. And I'm Heidi Waterhouse, transformation advocate. We work at LaunchDarkly, the feature management platform that gives you more control over your code and how it gets delivered. Unintended Consequences is brought to you by HeavyBit, an accelerator and venture fund dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. On today's episode of Unintended Consequences, we talk with Jay Paul Reed of Netflix about resilience, how teams can better understand what makes systems work when they do work well, so they can do more of that. Today, we have with us Jay Paul Reed, who is currently making Netflix work. (laughs) <laughs> I got a lot of help in making Netflix work, but uh, I, I, the way I actually kind of like to think about it is that I help the people that make Netflix work better understand all the ways in which they make Netflix work that may not be super obvious to them. I guess that makes sense because there's the the things that we do and then like the meta understanding of the things that we do, which we can't really do when we're in an emergency or mm-hmm. reacting. Yeah. So, so for folks that, you know, aren't familiar, I, I'm a senior applied resilience engineer at Netflix um, and the implied is very important. Um, but what's interesting about that is, you know, a lot of times it goes back to this age old question around, we always post more than when the site was down, but we ever post more than when the site is up. And so helping people understand how they go about doing their work, how that makes actually the system work, how it makes it quote unquote safer or more resilient, right? And so then we can do more of that, right? As opposed to just being reactive in a in a uh, incident context or an outage context. That's what I, I spend a lot of my time thinking about and, and helping folks on that journey at Netflix. And it's fun. It's a lot of fun. Right. And I never remember the actual name of your degree. So I just tell people that you have a degree in disasterology. Uh, but <laughs> I love that. I'm going to have to start using that. I love that. So the degree is in human factors and system safety. It's from uh, a university in Sweden, in Lund University. Although I had a friend once joke that it was the all spa Swedish school of massage actually was what they said, but, <laughs> but I kind of like the all spa Swedish school of, of disasterology. Actually, there you go. That's what it should be. And it's funny, by the way. So for folks that aren't familiar with that program, I was just telling someone about this and a little bit of the history I think is useful to talk about. The reason we call it the all spa, you know, Swedish school of, of whatever um, is because he was the first software person to go through this program. And what's unique about the program is that it was originally designed for, uh, you know, air traffic control and pilots and doctors and nurses. And there's a lot of maritime shipping and a maritime gas and oil extraction. Um, So, you know, people driving boats. In fact, Lund University has a boat simulator. Or no, wait, I'm sorry. That was Kalmar, which is another Swedish university. Anyway, we got to go play with the boat simulator, which was a lot of fun. It's like an aviation simulator. Like you're on the bridge of the boat, you get to steer it and we got to bump. um, I think we actually 
smashed the boat into a bridge right in front of the Sydney Opera House was where they set up the, <laughs> set up the simulation. Anyway, you know, drifted yeah. through a canal. You know what's funny? You say that, and now that like that's like the whole meme and whatever. But so this is a bunch of like like we we made sure when we were in the simulator that there weren't any maritime people there, and so so we because we didn't want the advice. It was all like you know computer people and you know doctors and stuff, and so we were like, let's take this huge container ship and like max power, right? And then it was a game of chicken with the coast because we were trying to see like how <laughs> close we could get to the coast. And so the best part is we actually did crash into a cruise ship but it it's not the crash the way because you're on you're on the water right and so the boats actually just came together and kind of then bounced off um anyway though so he was the first person who went through this program and i was the second person and then uh nora jones and some other folks were in the cohort after that so i think we're up to maybe all told maybe 10 software people in the cohort after me and the one after that and Nora Jones tells this great story. I love this story where, you know, they're doing intros on that first day. And this was before I was in the program before I worked at Netflix, but Nora was at Netflix at the time. And so it's like, you, what do you do? Well, I'm a trauma surgeon. What do you do? Well, I'm an air traffic controller at, at London Approach. You know, what do you do? I'm a pilot uh, for, you know, SAS or whatever. And they're like, what do you do, Nora? And she's like, I work at Netflix. <laughs> and she says, they all laughed and said, no, no, really, what do you do? And why are you here, you know, in the safety program? And she would say, no, I really work for Netflix, right? And and had to walk them through and explain, you know, with her colleagues or her classmates why, why she was there. But I love that this has become a thing, right? That human factor system safety and software um, has become more of a thing. Because, you know, it's funny, we, we talk, you know, DevOps traditionally had that, you know, culture and empathy and that whole component. And it's really taking the the tack that the social parts, the social parts of the system, right? The socio and the socio-technical system actually matters. And I think for so many years, we just kind of thought, nah, you know, if we write enough run books and automate enough things, we can kind of ignore the dynamics of the people and how they contribute. And that's a major shift that it's the people that makes the whole thing work. And you need to pay attention to that. Human factors are so important. And, and when we're talking about DevOps and surprises at scale, the whole point of scaling problems is that you can anticipate a lot of them, but some of them are just unimaginable until you get there. Like, who would have thunk it? Well, and so what we often talk about, you know, in that context, we talk about the emergent nature right, of systems, right? And so, you know, when you talk about scaling and the surprises and the challenges, it really is a lot of the emergent aspect of a system, right? I was just in a meeting recently where we were talking about a reorg, you know, Netflix is famous for reorgs. Um, and I, I, somebody actually said it this way. I really liked how they said it. They said, at Netflix, we don't want to ever fall into the trap of shipping the org chart, right? Shipping a mirror of our org chart in the software. So they, they will reorg pretty often, not the entire company, but parts of it, right, to better reflect, you know, what the customer needs and the product needs and all that kind of stuff are. But we were talking about, you know, uh, when you start doing that, you can find situations where you may have incidents because of a reorg, right? Because the expertise got moved around or, you know, something happened there. So that's that's an example of an emergent thing that, you know, as when you talk from a scaling perspective, if you believe that that's a good way, you know, to be comfortable with reorgs and be okay with that, 
as your company grows, there's going to be more of them in, it spread out across the company, right? They'll just be more common because of the size of the company. And that's a one of the vast numbers of emergent things that you end up having to pay attention to. Right. And I think the one thing I'll just say real quick, I think that, you know, emergence happens whether or not you want it to happen. It's really around, are you paying attention to capture what you can learn from that? And organizations are really good at paying attention to pain. So that's why incidents are the you know, tip of the spear for that sort of thing, because they're painful to the org, right? And, and a lot of orgs try to like figure out how much an incident costs, and that's an internal debate. Can you measure the cost of an incident? And so, you know, that's that's where they experience that emergence. But you can experience it in other ways too, right? And if you have folks that are sort of dedicated to paying attention to that, I think that can be super useful. Yeah, I think we think of emergence and the emergent properties of systems as as a sort of thing that happens to us and as an emergency, like it's not an accident. These words are very closely related. Mm -hmm. Also like the properties of a system are responding to the external pressures to make the system the way it is. Like all systems are responding to positive and negative pressures that we may not be paying attention to. And I think the pandemic is a really interesting example. Like, so Netflix has all of this great streaming stuff to offer people who are now housebound forever, but how do you film new things? Like, what do you do? Do you go out and contract for like every Gilligan's Island episode ever in the hopes that people will somehow bond with Marianne? But wait, 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 can we back up for a second and recognize that when we all went home, Netflix was still streaming in a stable way. Like we've had well, issues with a lot of other things, but Netflix stood up. I can talk a little bit about that. I, you know, it's funny. I was chatting with a colleague, uh, Lauren Hochstein, and, and he was talking about like, you know, there are certain companies that if you were inside the walls, when the pandemic happened, you're going to have a lot of interesting stories to tell. So Netflix is one of those. Zoom is another one of those. Right. Um, and I'm sure, you know, I mean, the common ones, AWS and Google, they, I'm sure they have their stories as well. Uh, you know, Facebook, people were probably on social media a little more often. But before we talk about that, one of the things I actually wanted to mention and just go back to that idea you brought up of emergent, emergent and emergency and how those are related. One of the things when we look at those properties of systems, and one of the things from a resilience perspective that we're interested in trying to do is we want to dampen the emergent properties that are negative, that we say, oh, we didn't expect that, and that's not great, so we want to dampen that. You, it's not like a switch. You can't turn it on or off, but you can do things to dampen it. And we see that a lot in incident follow-up, right? We had a, a something that broke, and we might want, want to look at the emergent things that you know contributed to that breaking y'all can't see it but every time paul says caused it's and, air quotes <laughs> there's air quotes around it because <laughs> he is literally incapable of a, an unironic cause or root cause attribution well and the funny thing is you can't see when you when, when you when anybody says root cause including me but my face like scrunches up and I, I like cringe a little bit on the inside um but though the thing though is that the thing we don't talk about a lot of times is we can dampen the bad things great but how do we amplify the good things we don't often talk about the amplification aspect of emergent um properties because we're so interested in the make the pain stop let's dampen that that oftentimes we'll miss stuff that we should be amplifying. So, Kim, your question—I I, got to ask before I tell this story. I'm gonna—I'm gonna charge you 
with a question. Um, Kim, what did you watch during the pandemic on Netflix in the first, the first couple months? What did you, what was your keeping your attention? It's kind of heavy, but I rewatched the good place because I knew that the final season was going to come out. And so I felt like I live alone in a small studio apartment in downtown Oakland. And this is awful being completely cut off. You know, I don't have family in the Bay area mm-hmm. and I needed something positive. So I rewatched it as a lead up to the final season that dropped. I think, I think that was in April. Yeah. So good. I love that show. So good. Yeah. So good. Yeah. So good. Heidi, what about you? So my daughter and I watched through Call the Midwife yet again. I think it's her fourth time through, deeply addicted to Call the Midwife. And so she made me watch it with her. I skipped around a lot. I had finished up The Good Place, I think. And again, it's funny. I'm actually rewatching it now because I had a friend who didn't <laughs> see it. I, so we're watching it together. There's so many little jokes you don't get the first time. Through. It's very, yeah. It's, it's super, amazing. Yeah, it's Some super dense writing. Names. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yep. Uh, for a while, I was like, I went to a very dark place. And I think all of us experienced a little bit of that in the pandemic. So I went to like, I, for whatever reason, I leaned into the dark place. Um, and I I watched like a lot of Black Mirror. I love Black Mirror. But then oh. I was, I watched like half of it. And then I was like, I think I need, I guess I gotta go watch Shit's Creek, which I had not watched. So I, I watched, I went through my made my way through that. And I made my way through Kim's Convenience, um, which are both great shows. Kim's Convenience is amazing. I love that show. Um, so the thing that I will tell you about COVID at Netflix is, um, or, you know, when, when the lockdowns started happening in March and in, into April, we, so, so I'm on the core team, um, which stands for Critical Operations and Reliability Engineering. So we, we are kind of the top level incident management group. And so we often say, and and my colleagues that do this are amazing. um, We say we hold the pager for Netflix. By the way, I told them (laughs) in the pandemic, my mom got this new hobby where she would like anytime that she would see Netflix's down for like a friend, like on Facebook, they'd say, I think Netflix is down. She would actually text me and be like, is Netflix down? And so I was telling my, I was telling my <laughs> colleagues, you know, we've got multi-million dollar monitoring stuff. Let's just turn that off and use my mom. She'll text us when it's down. It's fine. Um, <laughs> but so we, we ended up treating COVID as a core managed incident. There was a lot of work around the company to make sure we, you know, um, as you might imagine, people were home and they were streaming more. And so there were a lot of really, a lot of really great work done, you know, folks really attentive uh, to their own systems, like, you know, trying to work through the additional load and, and, you know, what do they do about it? We had a daily, um, in fact, (laughs) on the calendar, it was every morning, I think at 10 in the morning. And the meeting for the incident responders, and I was one of those for the, the COVID-managed incident, um, the meeting was called a Now Your Moment of COVID-19. If you yeah. remember the, uh, what is it, from The Daily Show, right? yeah. Moment of Zen. So um, we, yeah, we actively managed it. And there were a lot of things that, that we sort of helped to coordinate and make sure that kind of information got around the organization. Our Open Connect team um, that delivers the video bits, um, they did some work, and, and you can Google around this, but uh, there were certain countries that were heavily impacted. I think Italy was one of them early on, where the government was kind of like, hey, um, people are watching a lot of Netflix, and it's causing problems for the internet in the country. Can you fix that? And so we... <laughs> and you're like, our infrastructure team will just fly into your 
COVID-ridden nation and lay some more fiber. Yeah, it's kind of like, listen, just get t- take the Ethernet cable and plug it into your neighbor's, you know, Ethernet jack. It's fine, right? <laughs> like plug it into Greece's Ethernet or something, right? Um, but so, so they did some really great work where they were able to detect kind of, you know, network hotspots and then change the bit rates at which the videos would play to help, you know, make sure that those, you know, more critical, like, infrastructure in terms of stuff on the internet in their country was not affected. Um, So there was some tremendous engineering work done there. The other thing that I don't think we talk a lot about is, you know, uh, you mentioned the the studios halting productions and there certainly was that. And, and Netflix, you know, was, was one of the companies that uh, created really early on some hardship funds for, for productions that are Netflix originals where it's like, basically, cause we're like, we literally can't film, so what do we do? Cause now you don't like, we're not paying you cause we're not filming. So what do we do about that? So they did a number of sort of, they called them hardship funds for productions that were affected by that. But the other thing that you have to remember that is a story. And I've told this story a few times about COVID, but you know, the more I think about it, it's like, there was such a tremendous weight, I think of everybody doing that work at Netflix from the standpoint of, we knew that we were, a place that people were finding escape and, and joy, moments of joy in a really bleak situation. And we were, you know, really glad that we could help in that way. But we are also all humans and we are also all working from home and figuring that out. We And, you know, Netflix is famously not remote, right? And we're actually re-examining that as a company now about, um, you know, is that the right decision moving forward coming out of the pandemic? But, you know, we had to struggle with all that, you know, ourselves while also trying to be there for everyone else. And so this is not a boohoo, woe is us story, but it really is when you talk about, you know, Heidi, we were talking about socio-technical systems. The COVID story is largely can be a framing about technical systems. How did Netflix make sure that the internet didn't crash? Or how did we, you know, manage some of the, you know, resources that were required to make sure that we, you know, kept the system stable, all that stuff, right? That's all technical stuff. But then a lot of the work that I did was really around socio guidance, right? I, I wrote um, a memo for the organization around burnout and it was, it was a, um, a curated sort of write-up of all of Dr. Christina Maslach's work at Berkeley, right? Yeah, yeah, Heidi, you're shaking your head. You know exactly what I'm talking about. That went through the org because it was like, listen, you know, in the April, May timeframe, you need to be aware that we may see burnout. We may see it in different ways. I mean, and I can tell you like on our team, we had some folks that were pretty impacted pretty early on, like within two to three weeks of of the lockdown, they were pretty impacted, right? And, you know, impacted by like, you know, I I don't have kids, they had kids, right? So they were with their kids. And that was a whole thing, right? I know that I was impacted, but I was pretty good for the first four to five months. Right. And so it's really interesting to think, and, you know, folks listening to this, you might think about your colleagues, we were kind of starting to draw little faux graphs of like, I can take the pressure and then do you fall off a cliff? Do you degrade, you know, kind of linearly? Like, how do you actually, as a person, degrade in the system? We can think about it when distributed systems, right, in the same way. How do you show that degradation of performance, right? And some folks, again, can take a beating and keep on ticking. Um, but then at some point, they hit a wall and it's a, it's a total shutdown and they, you know, need a month off or whatever it might be. Right. Um, and mine is an intermittent failure. Yep. Like I'm doing fine. I'll tell you I'm doing fine, except I dropped like four balls last week, uh, but I'm doing fine. <laughs> so, so I'll tell you this. This is what I realized about myself. I realized that I, in COVID times, even though we can't really do anything or couldn't do anything, right? 
I needed to take a week off every five to six weeks. And if I didn't get that, um, and this is where I love working with my team. They're, they're a great group of folks. I told them, one of them basically said, listen, about four or five weeks in, Paul, you get a little crunchy. And I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> and, they, and they said, well, you remember that Snickers commercial where it's like, dude, you're playing like Betty White. And it's like, <laughs> it is Betty White, right? And I was like, oh, I get what you're saying. So now actually when it's four to five weeks and it, I'm, I should put a week on the calendar, just be away. My coworkers will actually say, uh, Paul, you're, <laughs> do you need a Snickers? You're playing like Betty White out there. Um, so, you know, that's, that's something that I cherish with my team that we have that kind of space where we can do that. And, and I've done that for them actually um, where I tend to do it as actually more in incidents. Cause I've, I've, you know, I've done the thing where, you know, there's an incident that starts at, you know, 1130 and then, I don't hold the pager. I'm not on the on-call rotation, but I'll come in at 2 a.m. and be like, you know what? I think you should go to bed. The incident's stable. You should drop the debugging you're doing. It's okay, right? Um, and so that's kind of how I get them back. I, I tell them they should go to bed, not have a sleep, go to <laughs> go to bed. So I had another question in your not Netflix capacity as a conference runner. Where do you see us going in the next year? Oh. How are we going to scale that out? I cannot believe that AWS is planning to do reInvent, which just seems like the worst of all possible worlds. But maybe that's a scaling thing that I am just not anticipating correctly. What do you think? So I think a few things come to mind. So Heidi, you're referring to to redeploy and, and you came to the last yep. one. I know you, I, I, you've been to both of them, right? Yep. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I totally want to do it again. For smaller conferences, the real question is like, can you even schedule them now? Like, you know, because AWS, if they have to cancel, like, that's fine, right? Whereas if I have to cancel, like, that's like, I'm paying for that personally. And that's, that's a big pill to swallow. But it's super important. And, and I, here's the thing for everybody who's been to redeploy, like, I actually want to hear all the COVID stories. Like, do you want to talk about resilience? Like, let's, you know, figure that out. But I agree yeah. with you. I don't know. I don't know what it looks like. Um, and I have had people asking me. And so it's like, we usually do it in the September, October timeframe. And it's like, I mean, right now, actually, it's funny. It's it's probably too late to even get that started because, um, you know, all the planning and stuff you have to do. But we, as a country, we keep making progress and then people get eager and they go out and then the rates go back up and, and we, we just kind of seesaw back and forth between these two. And so I think that's what makes it hard. Here's the other thing I'll say about conferences in general, though. And you want to talk about scaling that back up. I was walking through the Castro here in San Francisco the other day, and I am an introvert, but I, you know, love being at conferences. I love giving talks uh, on stuff that's important to me. And so I don't consider myself as somebody who has any issue with being around lots of people. I, I like that, even though I'm an introvert. But as I was walking through, I realized I'm having a little bit of anxiety. Um, and and it, it was around just there's lots of people there. A lot of them aren't wearing masks because they were out on the sidewalk where their tables. Right. So they were eating. Right. And so that's why they didn't have masks. Right. And I remember having a conversation. Uh, I might have been with Emily Freeman. And we were talking about like, it's going to be a little weird because there's a lot of people that I'm going to want to like, I'm going to see them and I'm going to want to run, run up and hug them. And that's a thing that like, I'm going to be so excited, but you got, you know, that's, you should ask before hugging random folks. Right. And well, I, even you know, folks, you know, and love. Like, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, hundred percent. That's actually my point, Heidi. Right. Is yeah. I feel like when we go back to conferences, 
there's just going to be a lot of, you want to talk about emergent stuff. There's going to be a lot of emergent feelings that I, that's what I think about, right. Is, is how do I, um, couple things, what can I try to plan for? Like wanting to hug everyone. Right. So that I, I make sure that I ask, you know, is that okay? But then also we're probably going to make mistakes. And so it might be worth, um, not, not just about the hugging thing, but other things. Right. And so, you know, what's the grace that we can give each other and ourselves and where, by the way, does grace not play? Right. In terms of like, there's a line and if, you know, something happens, like grace is not the right answer. Right. So those are all some things I'm actually thinking about. Again, we get back to not the technical aspects of running the conference, but the socio parts of it. And I actually think about this going back to the office. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. We were um, just recently talking about someone who is, she is so good in an incident. You know, she's a part of the incident. Like she's amazing. Right. And I kind of made the joke. I just can't wait for her to yell at me in an incident again um, because she is so good. Right. And everybody that I was chatting with was kind of laughing about that. But, um, and so though, the thing was like, you know, there's that aspect to it too, where it's like, you're going to find out things that you missed that, that you didn't know you missed in the person I was talking about. I really miss her participation in even something like an incident. That's not good, you know, um, because she's just so on point and great at her job. She's such an expert. So yeah, conference wise, there's lots of things I think to think about, but let's put it this way. The conferences will figure themselves out. You know, um, I know you've been involved with organizing conferences. You know, we were talking about Bridget and uh, DevOps Days Minneapolis. I think DevOps Days will figure it out. I have no concerns about that. And I don't have concerns about the socio side of it either. It's more, that's where I find myself thinking about that aspect more. And what can we game out versus what's going to be emergent? What's going to surprise us, right? Right. I'm probably going to cry a lot, actually, when I see folks. That'll probably surprise me. Like, it's going to be so weird for us to remember how to relate to other humans. And I actually think that there's enormous potential for people having forgotten their company manners around gender and sexual harassment. And I'm a little worried, honestly, that people are going to leave their homes and just forget everything they ever knew about acting professionally. Yes, we have mm. been wearing pajama pants for two years. That does not mean you can touch me like that. I So I, it's interesting you you say that because I think there's that, but it's funny. I mean, I, you know, I, I think we are starting to see that just even in the public square. Like I think about people riding on airplanes and, you know, are we going to mask? Are we not going to mask? Like all, all those questions where I'm like, I mean, I was just talking with a friend. It's like, it's weird thinking about being in an airport again. I'm thinking mm-hmm. about being in an airport security line. Do you think that's going to be six feet? And I even see it now, you know, I'll tell this story uh, and it's, it's a hard story. I got my first COVID shot and it was an interaction that was, yeah, but it was difficult because there was another person. um, There was a couple there actually, and it was a mom and a dad and, and they had a little kid that was, was not masked and was running up and down the COVID line, the near line for vaccinations. And the little kid was talking to a woman that had a dog. And so the kid, the kid was interested in the dog. Right. And so I kind of finally asked this, like, you know, is this really appropriate, you know, that, that, that you should do, be doing this? And it was funny because their reaction was like, well, the kid is two, so we don't have to mask her. And I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not asking you to mask her. I get it. Two-year-olds don't really understand masks. I get that. 
But what I don't understand is why, and this kind of comes back into system safety, you're making a risk decision for all of us without asking us, is it okay to let my child run up and down the line, you know, without a mask on, right? Uh, and I get that, you know, and it's funny, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who was actually there with me to get the shot. And uh, I understand it's hard. Um, you know, Heidi, you're a mom, yeah, right? I'm, yeah, I'm a so, parent, but mine are old. It, well, but my his point was, listen, parents have had it really hard. And I was like, I get it. And so the reason I tell that story is because I think that's a class of just interaction we're going to have to figure out as we open up where I would say and where I think this is relevant to the work that I do is what we're really talking about is individuals own risk assessments and own risk tolerance. And there is mm-hmm. an aspect that we don't talk about enough. That's really purely, it's purely consent. It's the concept of consent. Are you asking folks for consent to do the behavior that you're doing? Is it appropriate to do that? Is it not? And I don't think we often think about it that way, by the way, that wasn't even my insight. Somebody used the word consent, that these are consent issues. And I was like, poof, like, Oh, I got it. It's a consent issue. Mm-hmm. If only we had a framework around consent and contagious diseases that, I don't know, is like 30, 40 years old now. That would be super. Um. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because Alex uh, Hidalgo and I were, were uh, chatting on Twitter about this. And he was like, masks are going to be forever now. And I was like, I don't think they are. And by the way, it was a very, I was very happy with the conversation. People were chiming. It was a very healthy, healthy conversation. It wasn't a conversation that often the damn bird site, it goes to hell in a handbasket and, you know, four, five tweets or less, right? It was really good. And my point was, his point was like, listen, flu cases have been almost non-existent. I was like, yeah, I didn't get a cold this year, right? And it's like, well, because you're all like, get it. You're all wearing masks, right? And I, but I was like, but I, uh, I don't think, I just don't think we'll be able to do it as a country. Right. It'll be interesting to see if we do. And I think, the affecting factors are going to be how much of the year is California going to be on fire? Because a lot of the reason Asia is so good about mask wearing is they have so many high pollution days. Like they do it for illness reasons, but they also do it because the air sucks. I am. Well, yeah. And uh, Kim, you were the, the day of Mars SF was Oakland also Mars too. Oh, like I think the whole Bay area was, I mean, that yeah. was so weird. Yeah, I have friends in the South Bay, like south of San Jose, that we're seeing orange sky. You know, when we talk about the pandemic, and this, our conversation took a weird term. It's very pandemic focused, which I'm fine (laughs) with. Um, I don't know if people find this interesting, but I will say this. I handled the pandemic pretty well. There were two times that broke me, like... You know, the good place, Chidi, like broke me, right? Um, <laughs> you know, like when chili, he, now with marshmallows, yeah. Right, exactly. I just watched that episode the other night. That's exactly what you caught the reference for, uh, spot on. But um, I went to the grocery store and this was a time when they were limiting people in the grocery store. So you had to wait in line. And Okay, that's fine. That was a little weird. But when I saw people starting to get into fights about who was where in the line, that broke me because I was like, social order is starting to break down. You're seeing people fighting for resources in a very sort of, um, you know, kind of lizard brainy way. And I don't mean that as insultingly, um, but just, you know, very needs and resources focused. Right. So that broke me. And then. Kim, I I woke up, I had a meeting at, I think, 10 that morning. I woke Mm -hmm. up and and I was like, it's dark. Did I sleep? Is the clock? What the hell? I thought, I thought maybe the clocks were messed up and and it was a five in the morning. It was still dark. And I remember walking outside and it broke my brain. It just broke my brain. So 
I think that will affect mask wearing. I think that the question of normalization is interesting. And like, so I'm a sex educator. I, I work with teenagers on consent-based sexual education. And to talk about how we've normalized conversations and protections over a generation, I think that maybe we'll get to that with masks. Like, this is my risk tolerance and that's like, you don't get to tell me what my risk tolerance is. Like, I can't tell you what yours is, but like inbound, this is what I'm doing for myself. Yeah, I, I'll say it this way, kind of as a maybe good, you know, conclusion uh, or kind of like summary. I think that's something as a country that we still struggle with, but I do like that this is causing us to maybe have those conversations in ways that are you know, um, bringing kind of a new framing um, uh, of things to, you know, the discussion. I mean, um, I'll give you one other example. Since you do um, sex ed work, I was chatting with a bunch of my friends and we were kind of laughing at all the parents who were figuring out the bubbles and the all that kind of stuff, right? And we were laughing because it was like, yeah, welcome to being gay in the 80s. Like you're Sarah sorting right and, and exactly <laughs> and it's like, like this, this is also familiar <laughs> right the straight people don't know what they're doing but like welcome to the party right and so we were laughing about that um i mean not in an empathetic sort of way the thing is is that we see a lot i, I think you know it's something we're still going to struggle with but i also think that these conversations you know for those that are paying attention and and want to learn more and pay more attention they're getting a different view of a lot of these topics Thanks for listening to this episode of Unintended Consequences. To help us observe how the unexpected success of a project can adversely affect the environment around it, please give this podcast a five-star rating on iTunes and promote it to every single person you know. You can learn more about LaunchDarkly at launchdarkly.com slash podcast and follow us on Twitter at LaunchDarkly. 